0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. Um, If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can certainly use uh, the insert found in your bulletin, and uh, I'd encourage you to do that just so you can follow along as uh, we read and then talk about this next section uh, in this book that we've been studying for now uh, quite some time. Uh, We began, I think, at the beginning of the year, took a break for the summer, but now have returned to it as of last week. And the book of Acts is not only God's way of communicating what He has done through His early servants, the apostles, but I remind you this morning that it's also God's way of communicating what that means for us here today. This is not just dry history, this is God's Word, this is... It might change us as a church, that might change us as a people called to be a city on a hill, whose light ought not be hidden. Last week I reminded you um, that while our summer study in the book of Proverbs dealt uh, primarily or in large measure with you individually, with your relationships, with your character, though certainly Uh, there was implication and application for our life together as a church. I told you that the book of Acts speaks more to us as a corporate church, as a corporate identity. And I know for, for some, that's somewhat of a bummer. I heard some murmurs. I heard some murmurs about longing to return to the book of Proverbs. And so as I thought about introducing this passage, I wanted to remind us of something, because it's no doubt that Proverbs, in large measure, not only spoke to us individually, but in large measure, it told us what we needed to do, what you needed to do. Acts, in contrast, not exclusively again, but Acts, in contrast, largely tells us what God has done. Now again, those things are not mutually exclusive. But the fact of the matter is, and I bring it up for this reason, we like to be told what to do. You like to be told what to do. Tell me how to make myself better. Tell me how to make my life better. Give me seven steps. Give me five steps. Better yet, best of all, give me three steps. And while that's not bad... And there is certainly a time for that, of wrestling through our character and and how we are to be as followers of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. The gospel is news of what has been done for you. And you need to hear that more than you probably need to hear what you need to do. Because the more you hear the gospel, the more you hear of what God has done for you, the more you will be amazed, the more it will change you, and the more it will change us as a church. And so, yes, there is value in the book of Acts. And I want to turn once again to this great history, a history that I hope will be in some ways, in many ways, repeated in us, in our generation as the gospel continues to march forward. And so listen as I read. Uh, We are going to read a passage that is quite lengthy, but hang in there. It all holds together. I'll try to hold it all together. Uh, Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 11, we pick up the story where we left off. We pick up the journey of Paul and his new companion Silas as they have made their way across Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and now are crossing the Aegean Sea into Europe. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas... We made a direct voyage to Semithrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke with the women who had come together. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Well, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, and he fastened their feet into the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them and and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and all their bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke... And saw that the prison doors were open. He, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and he, he rushed in and, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of that night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. And he and all his family, and he brought them up into his house. And he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the whole household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent for you to let you go. Therefore, come out now and and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. And they've thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and they apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city and so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. What a story before us. Oh, I remember this story growing up in in Sunday school. What What a wonderful display of God's power. The Apostle Paul wrote famously, after this time, he'll write to the church at Rome and he will say, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, because it is the power of God For salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew. And then for the Gentile. I think many of us in this room would say that yes, we believe that. We believe what you said, Paul. But I also think that for many of us in this room, when we interact and meet the real people, the real hardened souls in our lives, we forget that the gospel is the power of God. We've talked about this a little bit already as we studied this book. Way back in the beginning of the year, uh, we talked, I don't remember what passage it was, but we talked about how there are no hopeless cases in regards to the Lord. No one is beyond God's Reach And in fact, God loves to show Himself strong by grabbing those who seem to be just out of reach. Grabbing the proudest and and hardest heart and and suddenly making it tender and humble. One of the joys and, and frankly, one of the challenges of preaching through a book like Acts is that Luke, in his recounting of what was happening in the early church, keeps bringing up these themes. These common themes keep reoccurring. Themes such as the power of the good news, the, the mystery of sovereign grace, and God's plan for the Gospel to go to all the nations. Well, this morning, we, in a sense, as we come to this Passage, this familiar story for many of you who grew up in the church. We take all of those themes and we, we combine them together in a sense as we think about this gospel advance into Europe. You see, I think Luke shows us here three distinct, three distinct and unique lives being transformed by the gospel of Jesus. It's almost as if Luke is is saying to us as a church and, and has been saying to the church for generations, this is what's coming. This kind of thing. This kind of power. This kind of diversity. Sit back and watch and rejoice. And indeed, I know for many of us, we have seen this in our lives. We have seen this in the lives of those around us. And maybe you're here this morning, and you haven't seen it even in your own life. And if that's the case, we pray that you will be a story of grace and of transformation. A CEO, a slave, and a prison guard. Sounds like the first line to a joke, right? CEO, a slave, and a prison guard walk into a bar. No, that's not where we're going. Those are our characters. Those are the first three converts in the city of Philippi. At least the first three that we know of. The first three that Luke records. And these converts, this CEO, this slave, and this jailer, they could not be more different in socioeconomic status or in spiritual need. And now they sit at the throne of God praising their Maker, and they remind us today that that same Spirit and that same message works in different ways with different folks to produce the same glorious approach. The same glorious results. And there's no, there's no cookie-cutter approach with God. And there's no barrier that the Gospel can't break through. Three truths this morning for those of you who are taking notes, especially you kiddos. Three truths for us to think about and meditate on from Acts chapter sixteen. And the first one is this: Jesus saves the re- the comfortably religious. Jesus saves the comfortably religious. Our passage today, as I've said a couple times already, it breaks significant new ground as we continue to follow the Gospel. I don't have my map, but if you can remember my map and visualize, the the disciples are on the western, or excuse me, Paul and Silas are on the western side of Asia Minor. They're crossing the Aegean Sea. They stop at an island on the way to Philippi. Now they are in Europe. We learn in our passage this morning, it's not just Paul and Silas, but actually Luke as well has joined them. Did you notice that? Begins to say us and, and we. Lots of speculation about why Luke has joined the mission, but he's there. He's with them now. And those of you who were here last week remember that this call, this direction that Paul and Silas received to go into Macedonia was, it was a, it was a mysterious one. It was a mysterious direction. Paul received this vision to go into this region. At the same time, he was being prevented from preaching the gospel in Asia Minor. Remember, he wanted to go up north. He wanted to go into Bithynia. He wanted to preach the gospel in Asia. And the Spirit of Jesus told him, no. I want you to go to Philippi. But it was an open door. And it seems that the open door has... Been confirmed right away. They get a strong wind at their backs as they sail across the Aegean Sea. It takes them only two days to, to, to cross. On the way back, it'll take them five days. It's almost as if the Spirit of God is confirming, yes, this is where you need to go. And they make their way to this ancient city of Philippi in the region of Macedonia. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony, therefore it would have had an overwhelmingly Roman population. Jews and God-fearers, those Gentiles who were now worshiping Yahweh, would have been few and far between in Philippi. There certainly weren't enough of them to form a synagogue. The synagogues were these places of worship that went up in these ancient cities. But Paul has his method. Big city, synagogue, gospel. Well, he's got the big city. He's ready with the gospel, but he doesn't have a synagogue. And so instead he goes outside the city gates to a gathering of prayer, a prayer meeting. And at this prayer meeting, he comes in contact with Lydia. Now, Lydia, Lydia, that tells us a little bit about her, a little, some, some details that are not just, they're not just filler. Lydia is not from Philippi. Lydia is an immigrant. In an ironic twist, Lydia is from Thyatira, which is exactly the place where Paul just came from. The exact place where Paul was prevented from preaching the gospel. Could it be that Paul's first convert in Europe is actually a woman from Asia? Well, Lydia's Not just an immigrant woman, but she is a business woman. She is a dealer of purple dye. Really, Luke? You needed to tell us about colors? No. What he's telling us is Lydia was rich. Lydia was wealthy. You see, purple dye was made from mollusks that were found in the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. Very hard to come by. It's estimated that 8,000 mollusks were required to produce one gram of purple dye. And who knows how long, how far that gram of purple dye went in dyeing cloth. But the bottom line is that purple dye was expensive. It was for the elite. Lydia was a wealthy woman. She was a CEO. For all we know... She's got a home back in Thyatira. She's got a home in Philippi and maybe another one somewhere. Luke wants us to see that Lydia was comfortable in more ways than one. She was comfortable financially. She was comfortable religiously. And yet, she longed for something, didn't she? She had somewhere along the way she had met the God of Israel. She had met Yahweh and now she was a Gentile who worshipped Yahweh, a God-fearer. And Paul comes across her at this prayer meeting and whether she knew that she needed it or not, she didn't have enough. She didn't have what she truly needed and so Jesus brought her Paul and Paul brought her Jesus. And Jesus became the key for all the Old Testament Scriptures that she had been studying, that she had been digesting. And finally, the Lord, in a move of sovereign grace, opened her heart and she could see The key that she had been missing. Jesus of Nazareth. You see, what did did Lydia need? Lydia needed someone to intellectually engage her. She was a smart woman. Successful woman. She needed someone to engage her. To help her fill in the blanks of her understanding. And she heard of grace. She heard of grace, and the burden of the law fell off her, and Jesus saves her. See, brothers and sisters, we live in a deeply, deeply religious world. I know it doesn't seem like that at times when we watch our national news, but. In a world of just over 7 billion people, it's estimated that only about 12 to 15 percent of that world is non-religious. When you factor in Christianity and, and Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism and all the other religious groups, that leaves 84 to 88 percent of the 7 billion people on planet Earth are deeply religious people and they're comfortable in their religion. They're comfortable in their way of life, many of them. And yet, just like Lydia, they are burdened by the law. They don't know grace. They don't have assurance. And maybe you know co-workers and neighbors and and family members just like her. And maybe you're here this morning and you're in that same place. But Paul says being deeply religious is not enough. Paul speaks elsewhere of zeal without knowledge in Romans chapter 10 verses 2 through 4. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Lydia, the comfortably religious, believed and through her story God reminds us that he knows what we need and he knows when we need it and ultimately only he can give it that's the first person I want us to see this morning out of Acts chapter 16 but there's another type of person Lydia's conversion happened kind of quietly right outside the city gates Not much fanfare, not much publicity, but the slave girl that Paul confronts next is front and center for all to see. And the slave girl reminds us of the second thing I want us to meditate on, and that is Jesus not only saves the comfortably religious, but Jesus saves the hopelessly enslaved. Jesus saves the hopelessly enslaved. I love fall. Fall has fallen upon us. I love fall. I love the month of October, but but I don't like Halloween all that much. And the reason I don't like Halloween all that much is just because I don't like the glorification of fear and evil and death that is at the heart of our culture's fascination with this holiday. And it seems every October there are several movies that come out glorifying death and evil and adding a dose of the supernatural and making the supernatural entertainment for us. And that's frustrating for me because the reality is that's not make-believe. It's real. And Paul is confronted with it. Paul's world, the ancient world, abounded with oracles and and fortune tellers and those who tapped into dark powers to profit monetarily. It was rampant in that time and in that place. And it's not long after he comes to Philippi that he's confronted by a girl. What a different story she has from our CEO, Lydia. She's a slave. She's poor. She's dependent. She's probably Greek. She's maybe even a local girl. But the most significant thing about her is she is oppressed. She is possessed and therefore oppressed by a demonic force that is giving her real power to see into the future. This is scary stuff. This is dark stuff. Luke says it's a spirit of divination. That's what your English Bibles say. But in Greek, Luke actually actually names the spirit. She has the spirit of Python within her. Ancient Greek legend tells us that Python was a huge snake who guarded one of the Greek temples. And Apollos, the god of prophecy, killed Python. And now Python resides in people. And gives them the ability of Apollos, the Greek god, to foretell the future. And so here she has this spirit. And it is bringing profit to her owners. And it's robbing her of her own identity and and who she is. Can you even imagine this poor girl? And she speaks the truth. It's It's not that she's lying. These are servants of the Most High God. Yes, they are. They come to proclaim the way of salvation. Yes, they do. But she's not doing this for the sake of free advertising. She's doing this in mockery. She's doing this to lump Paul and Silas with every other huckster that's flying around the ancient world and swinging their dark powers. And Paul tolerates her for a time and then, perhaps out of pity, He delays, and then he just can take it no more. He does what no other person than a servant of Jesus could do. What does he do? He confronts her false master, and he releases her from bondage. By the power of the name of Jesus, she's free. We don't hear any more of her. She just goes off into the deep, into the distance, as as Luke then tells us about the consequences of of what that did. But I want I don't want to let her go off in the distance just yet because I think. See, I think this slave girl. Became a child of God. Most assumed that she did. I mean, how could she not? She was in spiritual turmoil and bondage. And the Lord in His grace met her and gave her exactly what she needed. Not an intellectual engagement like Lydia, but a powerful spiritual encounter with Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, as Luke recounts this story, she represents some of you. She represents some in our world, whether we know it or not. We may not be in bondage to spirits and demonic forces, but we are in bondage to our own passions. We are in bondage to our own idols. We are in bondage to our own desires. And all around us, people are enslaved. They're enslaved in addictions to numb their hurt. They're enslaved in idols to fill the void in their heart. They're enslaved in their own hurt that has blurried their vision of who God is. They're enslaved. And what do they need? They need a powerful encounter from Jesus. See, the slave girl, as she is released by the grace and power of God, her story reminds us of the exact same thing Lydia's story reminded us of. That God knows what we need. He knows when we need it. And only He can do it. Jesus saves. Jesus saves the hopelessly enslaved. Well, there's one last figure I want us to consider for a few moments. And it's addressed in this last truth. Not only does Jesus save the comfortably religious, the hopelessly enslaved, but Jesus saves the spiritually indifferent. See, much of the world may be religious. We know those statistics. But I think we who live in the Western world, we who live in the United States of America, we would say that probably this last category represents us the best. Spiritually indifferent. I mean, really. We Americans and Canadians, we're good people. We do the right thing. We work hard. And we live in a nation where working hard is rewarded with comfort and security. We are healthy. We are content. We are successful. We don't need God. You see, the Roman jailer that Paul and Silas come in contact with through these really amazing circumstances of events, You see, the Roman jailer wasn't a spiritual seeker like we might say Lydia was. He he wasn't in crisis like the slave girl was. He was just your average, middle class, government employee doing his job. See, in our story, a simple job lay before him. Secure and guard these two out-of-towners, rabble-rousers who'd stirred up the peace and Disturbed it. That was his charge. Simple enough. The reality was that these men had not just disturbed the peace, they had dismantled a local business. And they were, be, they were bringing a message of advocating foreign customs, as it was stated in verse 21. Customs in the Roman world were synonymous with religion. These men were bringing new religion into the city. And while Judaism was legal, Christianity had not yet distinguished itself from Judaism. But regardless, at this time, in this place, it was illegal to make converts of Romans. So these men are hauled in, beaten up, and given to this Roman guard. And the Roman guard does his job. Luke tells us that he puts Paul and Silas in the inner prison. And he puts them in stocks. No sympathy here. Puts them in an inner room with no light. Hands and feet chained terribly uncomfortably to a wall. He has no particular concern for these men. He is not curious about the message that they're bringing. He's doing his job. He's doing his job. Falling asleep on the job, too. But he's doing his job until the singing starts. In the most miserable of conditions. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. They didn't sing that because it hadn't been written yet. But they sang something like it. In the most miserable of conditions, in the most miserable of states, beaten and bloodied, Paul and Silas transcend their circumstances with joy. Joy in the midst of of suffering. I mean, when everything else is stripped away—security, and health, and comfort, and and future—and and there's still joy. Everyone hears it; it's loud. The jailer's mind must be spinning, and then it happens. In this clear divine event, the ground shakes, the doors come unhinged, the shackles are unfashioned, and the jailer finally comes to and he realizes that certain death awaits him if all his prisoners have escaped and he hasn't done his job. And so he's ready to end it. But instead, in another mysterious turn of events, the prison remains full. Why? Why? for the sake of the gospel. You see, how did God shake this blue-collar, spiritually indifferent government worker out of his spiritual indifference? By seeing the gospel come alive in suffering. And then, of course, God backed it up with an earthquake. That doesn't hurt either. But he saw the effects of the good news take hands and feet in the lives of those around him. Joy in the most improbable of circumstances. And Luke gives it to us here. Almost as if to remind us that don't forget what a powerful tool this can be. So many of you have suffered and you've suffered greatly and you suffer now. Could there be joy in the midst of that suffering? But joy is different than happiness. But there can be joy. And God at times uses that joy in suffering for such glorious purposes because as the power and the grace of God opened the jailer's eyes, His story reminds us of what Lydia reminded us of and the slave girl reminded us of And that is that God knows what we need, and God knows when we need it, and only He can do it. Jesus saves the spiritually indifferent. Well, the story this morning ends on a high note with the apostles being vindicated for an unjust arrest, an unjust beating, an unjust imprisonment, and and much more could be said about the passage, but the point of the passage, I think, is clear. The Gospel moves on. Whether it be through intellectual engagements, whether it be through powerful encounters through Jesus, whether it be through the Gospel being lived out in the lives of His people, through suffering, Jesus saves His people. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. Thank you for your servants, Paul and Silas, for what they proclaim to us about what you are doing, not just in their world, as these three individuals were met in unique ways by you. You who know them better than they know themselves. But also as you do that very same thing in our world, And I pray that you would do that in this place. Certainly if there is one here who doesn't know, who doesn't understand what Jesus has done for them. Oh God, would you save them? Would you speak to them even now? And Father, as we go from this place holding this wonderful hope of the Gospel within us. May we be encouraged that those that we long for, uh, those that we long around us might come to You. That, that Lord, You know what they need. And You know when they need it. And only You can do it. Help us to trust You. And to be used by You in whatever way You see fit. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.